This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're talking about Jerry Brown. He will be leaving office in January as California's youngest governor, its oldest governor, and its longest serving governor. We look at the legacy of Jerry Brown, a word he hates. He hates the word legacy, but we're going to look at it anyways with Miriam Powell. She just wrote this book called The Browns of California, and it traces California's history through the Brown family, which includes Jerry Brown and his father, Pat Brown, who was governor uh, in the 1950s and 60s. We talk about his legacy in shaping California, the L word, and Jerry Brown. Next on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Miriam Powell, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And let me I'm going to start by just taking a couple minutes to slobber about the book, which, which is a <laughs> <Okay>. great read. <laughs> and it's for, Thank it's, you so much. Yeah, it's a good read for longtime Californians and, and the millions of uh, people like myself who moved here over the past couple of decades, because it's, it's a history of California from the gold rush to the present as told through the Brown family. But as you write in the book, it's a, it's a certain history, European immigrants moving to Northern California um, at that time. And, um, but because, uh, you know, Jerry Brown's just about to leave office, we're going to focus on him a little bit and about his dad, Pat Brown, who served as California's governor in the late 50s and early 60s. Jerry, as you know better than anybody, hates to talk about his legacy, quote unquote. But this week in Sacramento, you interviewed him on stage about that. Let's, let's start out at, at 35,000 feet here. When we, when we look back at Jerry Brown, what will you think of as his legacy? You know, it's I, it's such a complicated question. I'm not dodging it, but it because his tenure in politics spans so many years. You know, going back to he first was elected in 1969 to his first office in in Los Angeles, and then the two terms. When you think about what his impact on the state, if we want to avoid the L word, um, is going to be and how it will look back in history, you almost have to look at, the, at you know, Jerry 1 and Jerry 2 in some sense. Um, but, but I would say that the, the, I think there are a couple of themes that do span all of that. And one is um, kind of this commitment to public service, to the public good, to the idea that, um, you know, I, I, he's talked lately about restoring in this in this most recent round you know coming in at a time when uh, the state faced these huge problems people were saying California was ungovernable there was this very you know the the ratings for the governor and the legislature were were terrible and 
one of his, clearly one of his accomplishments was to sort of restore some public faith in government. And I think that kind of ties back to his first time coming in in the post-Watergate era when he was elected in 1974, um, and this idea that, that he wanted to sort of re- bring a different kind of thinking to Sacramento. And I think that's a common theme. The difference, the first time around was different from the, I'm using different too much, but, um, you know, wh- what the challenges were the first time were very different from what the challenges were the second time, and obviously he was different. But that sense of the importance of government and of a public good, he likes to quote a Jesuit philosopher, Teilhard de Chardin, who said, that which rises converges. And I think that is, you know, sort of very much been part of his legacy. And then, you know, we could talk more about specific areas. The environment certainly, um, you know, a big through stream there from the early years of some of the really groundbreaking uh, emissions regulations and things to clear up the air at a time when smog was an enormous problem to his more recent commitments in um, the areas of climate change and so forth. Um, so, uh, you know, unlike, I mean, his father had a much shorter tenure as governor and a much greater impact in the physical shape of California mm-hmm. because of the time at which he governed and the, the water project, the universities and roads and so forth. And with Jerry Brown, um, you know, it, it, it like, like, I mean, like his sort of characteristic intellectual um, persona, I, I think his legacy is... is um, more, um, in some ways, more intangible. Yeah. So now for years as a reporter, I've heard, you know, Jerry on Jerry Brown on, on the campaign trail refer to his family history. And, and, and to be honest, most of the time I kind of kiss that off as, you know, campaign trail happy talk. But, you know, reading this book puts a lot of that into perspective. How do you think his family history here, and going back to, you know, August Schuckman, his, his great-grandfather, correct, um, who was the uh, German immigrant who came first came here, um, how do you think that shaped him? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, I think it's enormously important. I mean, his growing up, and he talks a lot about growing up in the household where politics was, was everything. I mean, his father first ran for district attorney unsuccessfully when Jerry was one and then was elected San Francisco DA when Jerry was five years old. So, you know, the, the, the house, I mean, this, that environment that he grew up in, up in was just sort of all politics all the time in San Francisco, which of all places in California kind of has the most... Um, you know, traditional political culture in some sense, Mm -hmm. Um, certainly, you know, as as you and your listeners well know, um, you know, did then and and still does, I think, compared to to other parts of the state. So he, you know, was very much imbued with all of that from an early age. I mean, he has often said over the years that, you know, my father was governor, he was an attorney, I became governor, I was an attorney. I mean, there is something about the family business. And then on a more sort of philosophical level, I think the, the going back to Pat Brown's mother, Ida Shuckman Brown, um, who was a big influence on, on the whole family, really the, the matriarch in a lot of ways, and had a, a real commitment to a lot of the sort of strong moral values that shaped both Pat and Jerry Brown, um, the importance of immigrants in building California, and a, a kind of very clear-cut moral values, I would say, um, uh, when you look at um, some of the ways that, that, that they, the father and the son, who differed on a lot of things, but, but in terms of their sort of sense of what's fair and how to treat people and, and, and how to sort of um, 
combat prejudice and, and racial discrimination, and those are issues that they each dealt with in, in different ways. So I think the family sort of, the, the, again, in, in both practical ways, because of being the son of a politician and a very successful one, and then also that sort of the, the family, the immigrants, the belief in California, and all of those ideas that we kind of, you know, sometimes scoff at, but that sense of California exceptionalism and what makes California special, that it's very much part of that whole family. And a lot of those moral values were shaped in a formative period of his life here in San Francisco at St. Ignatius High School and his time at the seminary, which is, you know, a, a line in every uh, bio of Jerry Brown. But it's also, and, and we know him from <laughs> quoting Latin and dropping Latin phrases uh, in, uh, to uh, speeches and even uh, offhand comments. But your your book, as you're alluding to here, it really shows how this shapes him from the time he was a kid. He was always a very serious, introspective person. And and his in one line of the book that really stuck with me is um, someone describes him as uh, more like uh, Bernice, his mom, yeah. uh, than his dad, uh, who was a very garrulous, you know, backslapping politician. His mom, Bernice, was, as you, as you quote, a quick-witted loner. Um, so how did that time in San Francisco and in the seminary shape him throughout his life and his political career? Uh, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, I think it was enormously important. And I think the Jesuit influence from St. Ignatius and from, uh, from the seminary, and St. Ignatius is hugely important. You know, he's still very close to... Uh, his friends from high school, the SI class of 55 gets together for lunch on a regular basis. Uh, it was just an enormously important influence on him, both, I think, intellectually and spiritually. And um, and his mother, I mean, interesting because, <laughs> interesting you bring up his mother and religion in the same <laughs> sort yeah, of She practice. was not a religious person at all. She was not a religious person at all. Uh, but he certainly, everyone sort of seems to agree that he, he takes on much more after his mother in a lot of ways. Because his mother was super, super smart, you know, was went to Cal when she was 14 years old, kept getting promoted ahead and so forth. Um, but, uh, and, and not, did not particularly like the political world, but but you know warmed up to it and became a, yeah. a very effective and gracious first lady. And it was very important in supporting her husband. I mean, Pat never went to college and was self conscious about his lack mm-hmm. of higher education in some ways and relied on on Bernice. Um, so I think that 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 um, he he certainly takes on after, it. and that's one of the interesting things is the way that he balances. I mean, in a lot of ways, there are a lot of things about him that seem paradoxical, and it's his ability to sort of balance those tensions that has made him so successful as a politician in a lot of ways. So he rejects his father's garrulous, backslapping world. I mean, really, you know. To this day, doesn't like having selfies taken. Sort of will say to people, you know, wouldn't you rather have a conversation? Why do you want to commodify <laughs> me? You know, I mean, sort of um, uh, the only politician who doesn't like having his picture taken. I mean, how you know how odd is that? And and so uh, you know, and yet he had sort of did piggyback on his father's political instincts and, and love of politics, really. I think that's part of it. I mean, right. and, he, and his name. Let's loves see. to campaign. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he loves the campaign. Although he, his last couple of camp, well, his last, certainly his last gubernatorial campaign, he did precious little of it, but he didn't really have right. to. But wh- another thing that I, I, I found fascinating in the book was um, how you talk about how Jerry Brown, you know, he has this you know, incredibly quick mind, 
but how what how he craved structure. His mother gave him structure. She was, you know, she was structured. His time in the Jesuit seminary gave him structure, structure to, to, to construct an argument. And a third person who gave him structure later in life was his wife, Anne Gus Brown. Um, why, why was structure important to Jerry Brown? Well, it's that same balance. It's that, you know, he talks about, I mean, there's a wonderful quote at his mother's funeral that I think you're referring to where he says that she gave me the structure to sort of know I could, I don't remember the words, but bounce around as much as I wanted and there would be this safety net. And um, he has talked at various times about the, how you need the balance between um, rigor and imagination. And if you have only rigor, you have rigor mortis, and that's death. And if you have only imagination, you have chaos. And it's finding that balance between, um, you know, imaginative, creative, exciting ideas, and then the structure to make them work. And and Gus Brown has been, in, you know, enormously important. Um, they their partnership is really kind of remarkable. Uh, they they do everything together. She's been a really key part of his political world and success since 2005 when he ran for state attorney general and he returned to the state scene, um, served as his special advisor and counsel and kind of uh, chief of staff back in the AG's office. And she comes out of the business world, a very successful lawyer, um, and was able to, is able to uh, kind of keep him organized in some ways and manage. And he, he has credited her with giving him an appreciation of the importance of management. And, uh, you know, it, that it's a partnership that has really worked. But, but you, I, I, going back to the beginning of your question, I think very accurate observation that of that importance of structure. And it, the Oakland Military Institute, which was one yes. of the two charter schools he founded in Oakland, the same idea. He felt he wanted that to be a, you know, a secular version of SI, really, yeah. because of how important he felt that structure is for kids. And he got, he got a lot of grief for that, uh, from people who were like, oh, Jerry Brown, Mr. Liberal, you want a, a military school? <laughs> uh, like, that's crazy. Um, yep. But it's, you know, it's, it was very important to him. It, it was, it, uh, he had the uh, OMI show up at uh, various uh, times when he was sworn into office. Get back to Ann Gust Brown. Um, Joe Trippi, who uh, was a longtime advisor to Jerry Brown, one of the top uh, Democratic advisors in the country, ran, he was, did media for his uh, 2010 uh, gubernatorial campaign, told me after that campaign that if Ann and Jerry had been together back in the day, he would have been president. Um, do, you, do you think that's, that's real? You know who knows. I mean, it's hard to it's it's hard to to speculate back. I mean, he's also said if he hadn't run the first two times, maybe he could have run later on. You know, I mean, he certainly has said that running in 1980 was a mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, hard to say, uh, yeah. but certainly, um, certainly, she's been a you know an enormously important influence. He ran for president as you alluded to about four times, correct? And uh, three, three. 76, 76, 80, 80 and 92. 92, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. He, um, and people told me he, you know, close to him said he'd run again <laughs> if he wasn't, you know, oh, yeah, almost, yeah. almost 80. Um, I think what, he said that in, in 2016, he actually said on, on Meet the Press or one of the national programs when he was asked, you know, he said, if I was 10 years younger, I'd guess I'd run. <laughs> so what drove him to run for president? Because that's kind of the, the, the part of the, the Jerry Brown biography, too. It's, it's, it's faded somewhat. Uh, but what, why, what drove him to run all those times? 
I think he honestly believed that he was the best person to be president, that he could be the most effective president, um, which, you know, he will now say, well, I was 36, you know, that was a little brash. Um, but but I, that there was, in, in, in one of his closest friends, his childhood friends, who was also a political, in the political world very much, you know, said at the time, um, if he's running, it's because he thinks he can win and he thinks he's the best candidate. Um, and, and that's very much, I mean, one of the interesting and unusual things about him is that transparency in some degree, you know, that, that there is a, it's it's gotten him into trouble sometimes because he says things that are on his mind and, you know, that, that are perhaps not the most political thing. But I think on the whole, it has really worked his advantage because there's people's sense in authenticity there. So he's not an elegant, great speaker. I mean, his best speeches tend to be extemporaneous. Right. Um, and, Almost and all of them he, are, you know, correct. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, he'll read speeches for State of the State and things yeah. like that. But um, but some of, you know, certainly his most impassioned rhetoric has been very much off the cuff. Uh, but but there's, a, I think people respond to the genuineness there. Uh, there's a real, and that, that also kind of goes back in some ways to his Jesuit training because those sort of moral precepts of, um, uh, and, and that idea that it's not about you, and of course, all politicians, it is about them. And he, in, in the press club the other day, referred to the fact that, um, you know, politicians like to be the center of attention. Um, but that the Jesuits training is sort of that it's not supposed to be it's about the glory of God, it's not the glory of you. Um, so I think that he makes an unusual effort to not be the center of attention and things and to um, you know, to not embellish and to and to also um, be very straightforward about condition. It doesn't sugarcoat things. No. So, uh, you know, and that, and, and he embraces crises, which is another unusual thing, because he sees crises often as a way to get people to act on something that they, you know, were reluctant to. Um, so whereas you, a lot of your traditional politicians will you know, run away from crises as fast as they can, uh, there's something he tends to be intrigued by them in some ways. One of my uh, first uh, interactions with Jerry Brown was when he was uh, mayor of Oakland, uh, and when he was he spent his years in the in the wilderness after he left uh, his first two terms as governor. Uh, he spent some time with Mother Teresa, of course, and and uh, and then he. Uh, settled in Oakland. How did Oakland shape him? Yeah, Oakland, and you can, you know, you San Franciscans can really appreciate the sort of, that idea that when he told his friends that he was going to remake his political career by moving to Oakland, people thought he was not. Oh, collective you know, eye roll. I mean, like, really? Yeah. And then he was living down there at the, in the, his commune in Jack London, and it was, uh, and his his KPFA show, he had a show on KPFA right. radio for a while, and it's just kind of Jerry, you know, ranting or talking it was it was very kind of both ethereal and dense at the same time, um, and compelling uh, a lot of the time. But so how did how did those years uh, in Oakland, both living there and then as the mayor for two terms, shape him? So I think it was a very important um, influence on him, particularly the two the two terms as mayor, because of seeing at that ground level um, how policies that are 
you know, implemented on the state level and so forth, how they actually play out. And he really um, likes, I mean, again, there's that kind of like introvert who likes to campaign and be around people and also introvert who likes to walk the streets of Oakland and talk to people about what's going on. And um, there was something about the concreteness of that that you could really sort of understand on a, on a much more granular level how policies from development to criminal justice issues play out and, 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 and really affect local communities. And he liked that. And he also learned a lot from it. And um, certainly in the criminal justice sphere, I think it was enormously important in influencing a lot of what he did when he came back as governor, right. you know, much of which was to undo some of the things that he had helped to do the first time around. Yeah, so, I said, uh, what do you, the quote in your book, and I remember him saying this, was that I screwed a lot of things up back my first two terms as governor. I'm going to try and unscrew them now. Exactly. And one of them was, was something like determinate sentencing for, yes. for crimes, where if you do a crime, no matter what it is, you get this is the sentence you get. It stuffed our prisons in California and, and led to a lot of other problems. And, and living in Oakland, as you write, kind of helped to open his eyes to what the problem with that was. Yeah, I think that, you know, the seeing what the recidivism rate was and understanding that people were coming out of prison so unprepared to function in society that that was just a, you know a prescription to to continue the problem and and really sort of very much changed I think his views about the role of punishment in prisons you know, that the prisons had a you know needed to have an element of restorative justice and obviously that's kind of tied into a whole national movement these days but. Um, but that, you know, led to um, him advocating for a lot of changes over the last eight years. One thing that that uh, is, a, is, a, is a bad legacy for Jerry Brown is that the homeless population in California boomed under his watch. Now, of course, there's many, many factors that go into that. Uh, 50,000 people in the street in Los Angeles, you know, uh, several thousand here in San Francisco and in, in his home, former uh, adopted hometown of Oakland, um, many thousand there. Um, but he doesn't talk about it. Uh, he did not make it a priority. And s- someone uh, told me that, you know, he said, you know, if you talk about something, then you own the problem. Uh, so there's a political calculus there. Why do you think that was something that he did not address fully? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, I think the, that, that owning the problem thing is absolutely true. And he kind of referred to that the other day, sort of, you know, half-jokingly, but the, 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 the trick as a politician is to take credit for things that, that other forces do, like the good economy, and to, you know, not own the problems. But uh, on a more serious level, I think he was very st- – approached his second round in, as governor very strategically with the idea that you pick your shots, you focus – you know, you have a limited amount of political capital, you're going to focus on certain things. And obviously the first thing he had to focus on was the budget situation and yes. figuring out how to kind of write the state's financial balance. Yeah, he came into um, office 27 – for listeners, $27 billion. Uh, in the whole, the state budget was twenty-seven billion. In the whole, it was a mess. We were at the, coming out of the recession then, um, and so he yeah, was, and it he, was, and it was. T- I mean, it was, and it was both. It was a short and a longer-term problem in the sense mm-hmm. that there were so many years of spending beneath. I mean, spending above one's means, and because the of the volatile nature of revenues in California, because we're so dependent on the upper-income, high-tax capital gains folks, that that he, um, I mean, he both sort of push through sort of budgets that, that cut programs as well as increasing revenue. I mean, two, two tax increases 
passed by popular vote, right? Yes. Prop 30, and then the more recent, I mean, the gas tax surviving a, a referendum, so to speak. Yes. Um, but, and the extension but of Prop 30. Think, yeah. And also that, but also kind of enforcing that idea that you don't spend on, you know, you don't commit to ongoing expenses with revenue that may disappear. Um, so that was sort of a change, I think a cultural change, we'll see how long it lasts in the kind of thinking about how to budget. Um, but back to your original question, I think, um, you know, he was very clear about picking the priorities that he that were important to him, cap and trade, environmental issues, climate change, criminal justice reform, um, and so forth, education, changing the the education funding formula, various other things we could we could go through. But but and then saying these are other issues that I think are important that I'm not going to deal with. And you know one can certainly criticize second guess his priorities. Um, you know he said coming in that he thought sequel was a bad law that needed to be revisited, but then it was very clear that that just was not something he was going to take on. Um, there were pressures to take on the tax structure in some way, and he also resisted that. Um, and the homelessness, you know, it. Uh, uh, I don't. Um, you're right. He. He. I think he politically avoided talking about it in order to not own it. And one could sort of say that about the whole housing. Um, crisis, which yes. of course is tied to income inequality or wealth inequality, and uh, and that's another area where, I mean, he has talked about that, and his response on that has generally been of trying to do what the, you know, of trying to define things that the state can do that are very concrete that can help lower income people. So whether that is the, the you know, the, the tax credits or the expansion of Medi-Cal, enormous expansion of Medi-Cal in the mm-hmm. last eight years. Um, and so I think he has looked for ways to do things. I mean, he, it, it, I think this is also consistent with his early years. What he was known for the first time around was very much this, we're in an era of limits, we're not, you know, very right. upset a lot of the traditional Democratic constituencies by saying, you know, less is more, and there's a limit to what government can do, and it can't do solve all your problems. Um, I, his rhetoric has obviously softened on that a lot over the years, but I think he there's just, there's a, a consistency there, which is you know the state cannot solve all these problems, and so you have to pick the ones that you think um, are you know most in need of attention, and the things that only government collectively can do at the state level. I mean, he's also a big advocate of the principle of subsidiarity. And yes, we, we, that sent us running for our, our running for our. Uh, our uh, thesauruses and uh, right. when he would introduce the papal principle of subsidiarity as he first introduced it. Yes, yeah. explain what that yeah. is. Which is so the idea that that what the, that that you should handle it. The problems are best dealt with at a local level, and that's the level at which people are have the greatest understanding and the greatest control, and should have the greatest responsibility. And so. Uh, and, and you know, and there are uh, there. That's a balance too. He would acknowledge that that there are places where there needs to be a higher level of of involvement in order to to influence things. But I mean, the clearest example of that was the the school funding formulas, which used to sort of the state used to mandate categorical spending in I don't know, 40 different categories or something, and that was kind of abolished in order to give the local districts more control over how right. they spent the money. And um, the argument there is that the people who are you know, closest to it should have the greatest responsibility. And, um, and, that, and that, that was a, a way to, to, uh, um, 
to talk to, to help folks out who are uh, more unfortunate because uh, uh, districts with uh, higher numbers of uh, kids who were getting free to reduce lunch and, and poor districts got more. Uh, so there was there was a way to try to address uh, address that income inequality through that thing. Exactly, I think that's. I mean, that's a very good point, and it ties back to what we were saying before because it, that's a very good example of a place where I think he felt that um, that was something you know very specific the state could do. I mean, the money is targeted to, as you said, lower income and also English language learners and foster kids. Those are sort of the three categories. So the districts that have greater needs in those areas have gotten more funding. That's not made some of the other districts all that happy. Right. Um, but that's something where the, where the state is, has been very involved. But, but I, I think that housing issues in some ways or the homeless problems would, um, would fall into that category also of where the local counties and cities should be taking the lead. So that question is sort of what is the state's role in helping them to do that. Yeah. He, he's, as you alluded to earlier, and we sort of talked about a little bit here, he's he's been hailed, as in, especially in his last two terms, as a, a, a global leader on uh, climate change um, and, and using the, the, the power of leading the nation's uh, or the world's fifth largest economy um, is to talk about the issue and what can be done. California's on the leading edge of many uh, climate change and, uh, and, 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 um, uh, and electrical power uh, initiatives, I'm sorry, um, renewable power initiatives. Um, but he's also been gotten a lot of criticism for being soft on the oil industry or softer. He didn't come out for a ban on fracking. I always read this as uh, sort of a sort of the political deal-making side of, of Brown. He uh, he basically he kept big oil on the sidelines with on a lot of his climate change initiatives by giving him a little something. Is that that's not how you read that? I think that's essentially accurate. I mean, he is a very good negotiator, and part of his um, skill as a negotiator, I, I think, goes back to that issue of sort of transparency. I mean, he doesn't really play games. I mean, that doesn't mean he shows all his cards, but he's it's sort of he's very he's an honest broker in, de- in, in deal making and in saying, you know, what do you need? Where can you move? How do we put this together? And um, I don't think he. He doesn't. His view of business is perhaps different in some ways than a lot of the more liberal Democratic traditional constituencies would like. In the sense that uh, he's been very clear that business is an important part of the state too, mm-hmm. and business has. You know, if you look at the 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 settlement, the final settlement on extending the cap and trade legislation. Uh, he actually made a point at the bill signing press conference there of saying, and the businesses are here too, shall we point them out? You know, I mean, they're, they, yeah. they're part of this to deal too. Yeah. Um, so that goes back also to his kind of early 70s canoe theory of governing. You paddle a little on the yes. left, you paddle <laughs> a little on the right. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, that it's the art of making the deal, and um, he's good at that. Yeah, and it it's... Doesn't make, and it's also what he did in Oakland. Uh, for he was pressured uh, when he was mayor there. Oh, we need a downtown ballpark. And he's like, downtown ballpark's not going to bring you. That's the 80, 80 games a year. We need to build the ten thousand units of housing. And I think uh, much of what Oak, downtown Oakland is today um, is 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 due to that his uh, foresight and vision that. And he helped to bring a lot of investment there. Um, his relationship, as you write in the book, with UC is very complicated. Um, to say to say the least, uh, as a, as the father of, a, of one uh, UC uh, student, um, 
uh, he as a student, he was there kind of right before the free speech movement, correct? My, my timing. Correct. Right. Yeah. He graduated in '61. He was yeah. there for he's only at, he was at UC he was at Cal for a year and a half, and he left the seminary in '60-'61. Uh, but then he was clerking for the California Supreme Court Justice Matthew Tobriner in. 64, 65, and actually living in Berkeley at that time. So he was around during that period, mm-hmm. which was, of course, a very hard period for his father, um, yeah. one of the things that ultimately led to his father's demise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Political he, demise, yes. Political demise, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, make that clear. He lived a long yes, time. He lived, lived, um, lived past that. Uh, he, uh, you know, I think some of his relationship with the UC system goes back to his general kind of feelings about bureaucratic establishments. Um, although on some level he has come back in his latest incarnation as a much more conventional politician and political leader, there's still a piece of him, I think, could always that is... Um, that is very distrustful of bureaucracies and establishments and, and kind of an anti-establishmentarian. So he didn't like the um, the kind of rigid, the, that whole, although he wasn't particularly sympathetic to the free speech movement folks, that idea of that the Mario Savio line about the machine, you know, um, I think he agreed with that in part. So he's always viewed, and educational establishments, as you know, are sometimes among the the slowest to change or the most resistant mm, to change. Yes. And I think he finds that very frustrating. He was a lot more open about that and confrontational about that his first time when he sat, of course, on the Board of Regents as, as governor and made appointments to the Board of Regents and um, famously in his early <laughs> years uh, told the professors that they should be happy with a lower pay raise because they should derive psychic income from their work. <laughs> and, <laughs> psychic um, income, yes. That was a very Jerry 1.0 comment. Yes. And and uh, they have never, he said actually at a Board of Regents meeting a few years ago, I know that there are people who have never forgiven me for that. I get that. I'm trying to be more diplomatic. Um, but I think on a lot of levels he still believes that. Well, that's, so, it goes back to his seminary, uh, seminarian days yeah. because the Jesuits, it was a calling to them. They're not getting paid anything. Uh, yeah. So that's he he was sort of adapting that world to the UC. But, you know, he, he did come around to, to funding the university uh, you know, increasing funding for it. And, and as you write in the book, uh, the number of uh, UC students, or uh, I'm sorry, California students, has increased under his watch at the university. Yes, and that was from pressure from the legislature too. But um, I think he does have, an, sort of certainly has an appreciation and a respect for the role of the university in, you know, as an economic engine for California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, its role is so important. And to me, you know, I mean, I write a lot in the book about the university because I think that it, 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 it is, um, you know, it is reflective of the demographic changes in California over the years and, and, and that, but that common strand of the importance of higher education and the idea that it, it is now, you know, something 43% first generation students altogether or something right. like that. It's a way to lift higher. people up, especially young immigrants. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. So I think he does appreciate that, but it's sort of, he, you know, he is conflicted and he, um, uh, 
he is a very much of a traditionalist in teaching. Um, you know, he will rue the fact that kids are not taking humanities and they don't read T.S. Eliot anymore. And, um, you know, he, he had a very classical education and that's his background. Let's, uh, let's look forward to a couple, one, a couple more questions here. And, and whenever, uh, in, in, in Jerry 2.0, I guess, or, uh, he, he often refers to himself, and this makes me giggle every time, uh, as Cincinnatus, right. uh, who is the right. Roman uh, leader who came out of retirement to save the to empire. The emperor, right. Yes, then then return to the plow. In fact, one year at, at, at the uh, holiday party thrown by his consultant, so he actually showed me pictures of him on, and one was in your book, on his phone. On the phone, right. Yes, um, uh, of him on the ranch. And I was like, oh, come on, you're, not, it's like you're gonna be bored there in six months and you're gonna come back. Do you, how long do you think he's gonna, you know, he, he is going to return to this, to his ancestral home of his uh, great grandfather in Calusa County, uh, 30 minutes from Sacramento. I mean, more real. in my, more in a, um, oh yeah, 30 minutes from Sacramento. From Sacramento, right. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's gonna be bored there. And I think, and I'm, I really, I think the over-under on and spending more, uh, you know, being bored there is going to be <laughs> even lower. I, I don't know. That's my take. I don't but think that's really? true. Okay. Anne, what's, your, what's your take on that? Anne I'm very curious. really likes it there. She really likes it up there. Um, I think that they will hatch up various things. I mean, he's certainly going to continue to be intellectually involved in lots of different things in different ways. And, and um, as he said the other night, it's <laughs> farewell thing, you know, I have $15 million in my yes, account. Yes. Um, and His campaign spending account that he can get involved with other things. Yeah, yeah. And I think he will, you know, certainly will want to defend some of the criminal justice um, measures that are going to be under attack and ballot initiatives and so forth, um, and obviously to stay involved in climate change and so forth. So I think that there will be opportunities for, you know, I think he's going to ha- he's got to figure that out, and she will be very much a part of all of that, of, you know, how do you stay relevant when you're out of office? And he's someone who, because of his in and out and in and out trajectory, um, certainly has a very good sense of what it's like to not be governor anymore, and that that will be different and present sort of different challenges in how you stay relevant. But I think there will be things up there. You know, they will they will travel. They will have other places they go. They you know they, they he will have access to a whole range of intellectual life that um, that he will take advantage of. But uh, so how much time he spends up there, we'll see. But I think that as a base for thinking, bringing people there, trying to do some, you know, using it as a way of uh, his friends. Um, I think he actually at one point referred to it years ago as Camp David West, you know, kind of a, <laughs> a retreat where people can get away and figure things out in a way that is sometimes harder to do in the the day-to-day life of the city. Yeah, that's what he so wants. We'll yeah, once there's a guy who's writing the book who once bought a home in Malibu and he likes being on the beach because he likes that alone time to to think. Let's yeah. talk about his um, the person. Uh, one final thing about uh, the person who will succeed him, uh, Gavin Newsom, who has a uh, let's face it, kind of a weird relationship, a long rate relationship with Jerry Brown personally, but also the, their families go back together. Newsom's uh, late father uh, was a, 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 an associate of um, of Jerry Brown's father, Pat Brown. Um, and, and knew him for many, many years. Um, 
the uh, Newsom told me on uh, on this very podcast that I said, "Is Jerry going to be around to pick up the phone if you need help?" I mean, you you guys, you uh-huh. say you've gotten you're getting along better the last couple of years, and will he be available for consult? And <clears throat> I don't know is is Jerry that kind of guy? Will he? Yeah, will I he pick yes, up the phone? Absolutely. You think so? Yes. What makes you think? That? I think so. Um, because of that commitment to California and sort of public service. I mean, if if and and he he likes to be, I think, in some ways of to provide advice. I mean, it depends on what comes out of the conversations. If he feels that he's being used in some way or that he's being, you know, I mean, he he might stop picking up the phone at some point, depending on how the conversations go. But I think that <laughs> that um, that initially. Uh, you know, anything that he could do, to, I mean, he, I think he would want, he certainly want Newsom to succeed. Mm-hmm. And, and also there, there are issues that he still cares a lot about and would want to try to um, be involved and stay involved in some way in, as he calls it, the rudders of power. Um, what did Newsom say? Uh, well, Newsom said that the, he wants to reach out to Jerry and he and he's uh, already the transition, you know, in the transition, he's been very helpful. And, uh, and so he thinks that, Newsom thinks he will pick up the phone and yeah, will yeah, and will I help him so out. Too. Yeah, yeah. What is uh, one final thing? What is Newsom's biggest challenge in in following this guy who was the youngest governor, the oldest governor, the longest serving governor, and for all the legacy things that you've outlined today, what is his biggest challenge going to be? You know, I, I think his biggest challenge is defining himself and establishing an identity. Uh, always hard for someone to do coming in. I mean, he's not. He didn't really have to do that during the campaign because. Um, you know, with such a, he was running against such a weak opponent. opponent. Um, and so, I, I mean, on some level, that's an advantage. He didn't have to make a lot of commitments while he was campaigning, which could, you know, could be helpful to him in navigating now. Uh, but, you know, for all of the reasons we've talked about, the issues, the, the problems that are facing the state that are that are very real problems, and, and if there's a recession, that becomes deeper. Uh, you have a legislature that's going to feel empowered to play a stronger role. You have the the splits within the Democratic caucus over people, and whenever there is money available, uh, people are going to fight over the money. Um, so, so he's going to have to figure out how to define himself as a leader, I think, and and that that's that's really hard. And and he's following in a you know he's following a tough act, and he's following someone who coming back into power in the last eight years, you know, did not have that challenge. Everybody knew who Jerry Brown was when he stepped into office in January of 2011. Um, people don't really know what to expect from Gavin Newsom. Um, and so his first, they're going to be, you know, he's going to be watched really carefully, I think, and people are going to be making judgments and trying to figure that out. And it's in the midst of, uh, you know, heading into a national campaign. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of, you know, is Newsom running for president? I, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated political and governmental web that he's going to have to figure out how to navigate. Miriam, thank you so much. The book is The Browns of California, The Family Dynasty That Transformed a State and Shaped a Nation. Thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. I'd like to thank you all for listening to today's podcast. I'd like to thank Miriam Powell uh, for her time. Uh, Again, the book is called The Browns of California. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. And remember... No matter if you're the youngest governor in California history or the oldest, it's all political.
It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli, J-O-E-G-A-R-O-F-O-L-I, or you can email me at jgarofoli at sfchronicle.com. Support It's All Political and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.